Hello, and welcome to the Parkinson's Disease Caring Podcast. This podcast is produced for care partners and caregivers of loved ones with Parkinson's disease. This show is brought to you by Dr. Kloss's new book, You Are a Better Parkinson's Disease Caregiver Than You Think. Please visit pdcaring.com for more information. Thank you for joining the PD Caring Podcast today. Today's episode focuses on gastroenterology and digestive health for our loved ones with Parkinson's disease. On a previous show, we talked about swallowing problems and some of the problems that Parkinson's patients may encounter at the beginning of the digestive tract. But today we're going to sit down with a gastroenterologist to talk about the rest of the digestive system and how it relates to problems that come up in Parkinson's disease. I was able to sit down in an interview with a colleague of mine here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Dr. Matt Blankenship is a board-certified gastroenterologist in a private practice setting here in Tulsa. He completed his training at the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine, earning his medical degree, and then completed a residency in internal medicine and a fellowship in gastroenterology. Dr. Blankenship is now a practicing gastroenterologist at the Adult Gastroenterology Associates here in Tulsa. He has been with this practice since 2007. He has a broad practice um, specializing in colon cancer prevention, reflux and other esophageal disease, inflammatory bowel disease, and other functional GI disorders. But he has also become an expert in gastroenterology issues related to Parkinson's disease. He has also uh, been our interventionalist in helping our patients receive the Duopa therapy. And he has worked with uh, many patients over the years uh, in managing this particular device. We're very fortunate that Dr. Blankenship is willing to join us for an interview today. And I think you're gonna enjoy uh, his thoughts on helping our loved ones with digestive health issues related to Parkinson's disease. Well, Dr. Blankenship, thank you for joining us on today's podcast, and we really appreciate you taking time out from your busy schedule to help us understand some of the GI gastrointestinal symptoms that our loved ones are dealing with from Parkinson's disease. And thank thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on. Well, wonderful. Thank you. And I'm going to jump right into sort of our first topic. And I think most of our patients are dealing with uh, constipation is sort of a, a very common symptom that we spend a lot of time talking about in our clinic. And we know that, you know, some studies are saying up to 60% or more patients with Parkinson's disease have uh, major constipation symptoms throughout the disease. So I'm just curious if you can kind of give us some of your advice or thoughts about you know, how we can help our loved ones deal with constipation. And um, I know talking to you in the past, water always comes up as an important treatment to use as well. 
uh, for constipation. But but tell me what your thoughts are on on how we can help. Yes, yeah, sure. Constipation is a very common problem in Parkinson's disease, upwards of 60 or even beyond 70 percent in some studies uh, uh, of patients with uh, Parkinson's will experience significant constipation. And it um, uh, often uh, may even be an early sign of, uh, of one of the first manifestations of Parkinson's disease. So uh, it's definitely something to uh, to to uh, pay attention to. It needs to be addressed. It affects the vast majority of Parkinson's patients. Um, the mainstay of management of constipation in Parkinson's is really similar to the management in, in any patient. Um, it's important to maintain good hydration, get plenty of water, and to get plenty of fiber. Um, we recommend soluble fiber, uh, such as Benefiber, a fiber supplement, uh, target about 25 or 30 grams of fiber along with ensuring plenty of hydration. Um, now, it's important with constipation to think about the mechanism of constipation. There are different types of constipation. This applies to Parkinson's as well as non-Parkinson's patients. And we think in terms of fiber deficiency, uh, in, uh, but also can think in terms of, of slow transit constipation or pelvic floor dysfunction or what we call dyssynergic defecation, basically attempting to have a bowel movement but kind of working against yourself to, um, to pass a stool. And uh, slow transit meaning slow motility or slow movement of the uh, of the stool through the GI tract, particularly through the colon. So all of these in some combination or another may affect Parkinson's patients. Uh, fiber deficiency, again, can be addressed with fiber supplementation, but you have to be cautious that there's not something else going on. If we just keep uh, uh, piling more and more fiber on top of on top of itself in a person who's really not having a bowel movement at all, you can actually end up getting uh, into trouble with bloating and gas and abdominal distension, and uh, it can ultimately be detrimental. So, yes, fiber is important, hydration is important, but you want to make sure that that's not all that's going on. Um, and there are ways of evaluating for other forms of constipation, the slow transit, which we think is a particular problem with Parkinson's patients, and in some cases, even the pelvic floor dysfunction. The slow transit constipation can be evaluated with a, uh, a transit study uh, where patients swallow a marker that um, uh, or a, a group of markers that will gradually move through the colon over a period of a few days. And then you can evaluate at the end of, say, five to seven days where those markers are and to make the distinction between slow transit and um, uh, pelvic floor dysfunction uh, type constipation. Uh, dyssynergic defecation or, or uh, pelvic floor problem, again, the, the bowel movement, the, the attempt to have a bowel movement, but kind of working against yourself uh, actually has uh, is very treatable with biofeedback therapy. But again, it's important to recognize that that's really what the problem is. And um, uh, uh, that can be delineated with a um, uh, um, anorectal manometry testing, not necessarily the most pleasant testing in the world, but uh, it can be very helpful in the right setting. So uh, again, mainstay is hydration and fiber, but 
paying attention to what is really going on with the constipation, what kind of constipation problem this is, because all constipation is not necessarily the same. No, that's a great point. And, you know, I think one thing we probably should have um, clarified at the beginning was, um, you know, what is sort of the definition of constipation? What, what I mean, what should we expect mm-hmm. to be a normal uh, bowel movement routine? Should a, should a patient have a bowel movement every day or is every second or third day acceptable? You know, how do, how do we sort of... Yes, that's a great question and a a very important point. Many people believe that, uh, or just that you've got to have a normal, perfect bowel movement every single day. And uh, both in Parkinson's patients and in non-Parkinson's patients, that is simply not the case. There is a range of normal, and I uh, think of it as a rule of three. Uh, And this is just a, again, just a rule of thumb. It's not a hard and fast rule, but somewhere between Three bowel movements a day and a bowel movement every three days is a is a range of normal. Um, to me, the, the 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 key point is whether a person is comfortable or uncomfortable. If if the natural pattern of an individual is a bowel movement every three days and there's no abdominal discomfort, distension, straining, that's just that person's normal. Then then that's okay. Um, three days probably is the outer is the outer edge of that. Uh, uh, I mean, two days may be a little better. Uh, and of course, a nice perfect formed bowel movement every day would probably be ideal. But um, again, I would not be too uh, too concerned if it's every couple of days, even every three days, as long as the person is not uncomfortable. Mm, very good. Very helpful. Yeah. Okay. And. And so th- those are great uh, ideas and, and great, um, you know, getting that water, getting that fiber so important. And a lot of a lot of the patients that I see will say, well, you know, I'm having such trouble with my bladder control and I don't want to be running to the bathroom all day long, you know, by drinking too much water. So they they definitely tend to under hydrate. But um, any recommendations on over the counter products. A lot of our patients are using Miralax or stool softeners. Any advice there? Yes. Uh, Miralax, I consider the, the mainstay of daily management in, in chronic constipation beyond as far as over the counters, beyond just lifestyle and hydration and, and, and fiber intake. Uh, Miralax is what is called an osmotic laxative. And, uh, what that means is basically you, you mix Miralax, which comes in a powder, into a water, into water or another liquid. And it, it, for practical purposes, makes it so that liquid will not be absorbed. So I think of it as a, as a wash-through laxative, sort of the way we, we think of different mechanisms of constipation. There are different mechanisms of laxatives. They're not all the same. They don't all have the same mechanism. A, uh, a stimulant laxative, say a Sinecot or Dulcolax, does just what it sounds like. Uh, it stimulates motility in the, the, the colon in particular to sort of to spasm down and kind of and, and get things moving. Um, Miralax is probably preferable for, for uh, a chronically constipated person who just needs something on a day-in, day-out basis. It's a nice choice also because it's easy to adjust the dose based on the response. If a person is taking one capful of Miralax in eight ounces of water and having no effect, that can easily be doubled or, or 
tripled or made to twice daily dosing. On the other hand, if a person is taking that standard starting dose but is having diarrhea, having to rush to the bathroom, then it doesn't mean you can't take Miralax. It just may mean that you need less of it. Uh, take it every other day or take a half dose. It's very easy to adjust. Now, the stimulant laxatives, which I mentioned earlier, the Sinecot or Dolcolax, um, are, are, there's a bit of a misconception that you, you'll ruin your colon or you, you can't take those regularly or chronically. Probably not a great idea to take every single day, but this old idea of co- what they used to call cathartic colon, like just ruining your colon by taking stimulant laxatives, probably pertained more to laxatives that were available decades ago. Um, uh-huh. Sinecot or Dolcolax uh, are, are very reasonable to take maybe once or twice weekly. Um, if, uh, just, if, if people just need a little help to, to stick to that every, maybe every two or three day pattern, but, uh, stool softeners, you mentioned, uh, nothing wrong with stool softeners. I just always tell people that that's probably the weakest thing that you can be on. It's not really a laxative. It just, just kind of softens or really maybe the better term is, is sort of slickens the stool and may make it a little bit easier to pass, but mm-hmm. it is not a, a real laxative. Okay. But, okay. Uh, very good. Uh, one other thought on yeah. over-the-counters. Milk of magnesia sometimes is, is overlooked and is a, is a very good choice. Sometimes people will not do great with Miralax, but uh, that liquid uh, milk of magnesia may work a little better. So that's a that just have to be careful. That does magnesium, so it, uh, you have to watch that. But, but it's an effective choice as well. Yeah, and the Miralax is something our patients can stay on for, for years. I mean, they don't need to be worried that there's a limited – a time frame to use this and then have to stop, correct? That's correct. Okay. Uh, it is not uh, uh, sometimes patients will, or caregivers will say, well, we're going to become dependent on it or, or, or addicted to it or ruin the colon or something. And what I tell people is is you, you already have the problem. The problem is the constipation. And it, you look at it as a chronic problem just like uh, that, uh, that needs a maintenance medicine, just like somebody with hypertension stays on his blood pressure medicine or somebody with diabetes stays on diabetes medicine. Uh, with constipation, yes, you can make some lifestyle changes, but, but uh, some patients, many patients, will just need to be on a maintenance medication for it. Sure, sure. And, you know, you and I see patients that have obviously tried all of these um, important things um, over the counter and um, all of the lifestyle uh, adjustments and, and even dietary adjustments, but they just sort of need a prescription medication. Can you, can you tell us more about the options they might have, you know, with a prescription medication for constipation that helps? Cer- certainly, yes. Stepping up from the over-the-counters that we have mentioned, um, uh, really, I think of, of three medicines that are in a family of, of prescription laxatives, for lack of a better word. The first of these is a, is a little bit older one called Amatiza, a commercial name in the U.S., and then Trulance and Linzess. Uh, these are all effective medicines that work. They have not identical but, but similar mechanisms um, at the cellular level that, that ultimately the, the the way I think of it myself is they, they kind of pump water into the gut in one way or another. Linzess at a higher dose also has some uh, pain reduction uh, uh, properties. So it's, again, given at a higher dose may reduce abdominal discomfort in patients with irritable bowel syndrome. But okay. for constipation at intermediate and lower doses, these are all effective. 
Um, they are expensive, and we don't consider them first line. Um, often our choice of which one to go with depends on a patient's insurance formulary. I, mean, I just look and say, well, which one is going to be the least expensive, and we'll give that one a try. Mm-hmm. They do have some side effects. Um, Linzess, uh, Trulance, Amatiza, all just by their nature can cause some diarrhea. Uh, that's not necessarily bad in a person who's constipated. Mm-hmm. I, I would say controllable, manageable Diarrhea is probably preferred to severe constipation. I mean, mo- sure. most patients feel that way. So, um, Linz S in particular, when it started, we advised that first week that a person is on it really to expect some substantial diarrhea, but it kind of evens out after about a week. Mm. Um, they are, uh, uh, and they are safe for long-term use. They're intended not on an as-needed basis, but for regular routine maintenance for chronic constipation. Okay. Okay. Perfect. And you know, we're, we're really working on this topic because we know that, um, sometimes patients have trouble with their Parkinson's medications working, Mm -hmm. you know, as well as they uh, could if, if someone's having trouble with, with motility and constipation and perhaps their medications are not getting absorbed as well as, as they could if that was sort of a more regular um, process for them. Um, but, you know, from, from the caregiver standpoint, we, we know our patients, our loved ones are going to be uh, working on this. They're going to be working with their doctors on this. But, you know, we're always concerned that um, a bowel obstruction could be one of the complications of someone who is dealing with severe constipation and, mm-hmm. and, and eventually gets into trouble with that. Um, as a caregiver, what do we kind of look out for? How do we um, identify that someone really needs to be taken into the emergency room or, or needs to come see you for help because this is going to lead to a serious complication? Sure. The, the, the main thing with regard to obstruction, bowel obstruction, is to distinguish between an, uh, uh, what we in, in, uh, in me- medical world or in uh, non-lay terms would call an actual mechanical bowel obstruction versus just severe constipation or, or what is sometimes called obstipation. Um, mm. An actual true mechanical small bowel obstruction, is, which is what in medicine, when we say bowel obstruction, that's what we're talking about. Or okay, on occasion, a colonic obstruction from a, a tumor or something. Uh, those are medical emergencies, and they are characterized by severe abdominal distension, intractable nausea and vomiting, meaning just persistent nausea and vomiting, maybe even vomiting uh, uh, emesis that, that smells like stool, that's a medical emergency, and that person needs to go to the emergency room immediately. That is a bowel obstruction, and that's why I would distinguish from severe constipation, which is uh, being being obstructed but not really being obstructed by a, a scar tissue or a tumor but just a bunch of stool kind of socked into the, the, the colon. And I started to say the rectum or the lower colon, but in some cases, you know, hard stool can, can extend up all the way to the, to the upper, the, what, the transverse or even over to the ascending, the uppermost part of the colon. And uh, patients can sometimes look like they have a bowel obstruction. And even if they don't have a mechanical, you know, surgical emergency bowel obstruction, they may still need to go to the emergency room, um, for uh, for more aggressive laxatives, uh, 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 
sometimes a full bowel preparation can be given orally as though a person is preparing for a colonoscopy and that will get things kind of opened up. Sometimes enemas are necessary, um, sure. working on the const severe constipation from both ends, uh, oral, uh, uh, Miralax like laxative or like a bowel prep from above and, and an enema from below. Um, it's also important to, uh, again, uh, I would just emphasize distension, vomiting, can't keep hydration down, can't keep food down. That can lead into the other things we want to watch for with, uh, constipation and Parkinson's, weight loss, malnutrition, or intolerance to the Parkinson's medicines uh, because the stomach isn't emptying or the gut, the gut motility is poor or, or, or kind of in a, in a, in a cycle, uh, a vicious cycle of ineffective Parkinson's medicines leading to less tolerance of Parkinson's medicines and then just leading in a, in a this circular fashion of weight loss and uh, just general uh, nutritional uh, malnutrition and gut dysfunction. Very good. Very good. Okay. And, and you know, the other uh, sort of offshoot of this that I want to talk about is this idea of, of delayed gastric emptying. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that can also be part of the complex of, of constipation and um, the autonomic nervous system, This this part of the nervous system that helps keep our bowels moving at a certain pace uh, is definitely affected in Parkinson's disease to different degrees. And so we have patients that really have a difficult time uh, with the stomach emptying the contents into the bowels. And, and this creates all kinds of uh, different symptoms. Our, our patients are complaining of just feeling full, like they can't finish a meal. Uh, they have nausea. They might have bloating, just a number of different symptoms related to this problem. Um, so I'm wondering if you could help us understand that a little bit more and, and you know, perhaps some ideas of what we can do to help our loved one with that. Sure. Yes. Gastroparesis is a very difficult problem. It is most commonly seen in the setting of long-standing poorly controlled diabetes. Again, gastroparesis means delayed or slowed stomach emptying. So we, we most commonly see it in patients who have had many years of poorly controlled diabetes because the nerve signals to the, to the, to the stomach are, uh, are, uh, blunted. Uh, this is same as Diabetic patients will have neuropathy or peripheral neuropathy, uh, numbness and tingling in the feet or extremities. The nerve signals to the gut can be damaged in, in, in a similar way by, by diabetes. But not everybody with gastroparesis is diabetic. About 30% of gastroparesis patients have what we call idiopathic gastroparesis, meaning there's no obvious or clear-cut cause, hmm. and uh, a certain percentage uh, uh, have Parkinson's. It is a, is a component just as the constipation is the, the dysmotility. It's a component of the, of the larger gastrointestinal dysmotility problem we see with Parkinson's. Gastroparesis is defined as delayed stomach emptying, most commonly, uh, uh, confirmed on a nuclear medicine gastric emptying study. This is a test where patients will eat a meal, usually it's toast and scrambled eggs or something like that, with a harmless radioactive tag or label. And then a radiologist is able to watch, uh, or nuclear medicine specialist is able to watch over a period 
of two to four hours to see how the stomach empties. Uh, a normal stomach actually should empty within four hours, uh, regardless of what you've eaten. Even if it's Thanksgiving dinner, it should largely be empty or, or only maybe 10% of the meal remaining after four hours. Yeah. Uh, we, For a quality gastric emptying study, we do prefer a four-hour test rather than doing it for two hours and then kind of projecting out or extrapolating where you would be at four hours. The, the, the real deal is a full four-hour test, and we uh, measure the amount of food remaining in the stomach at the end of that time uh, to make the diagnosis. But uh, also other criteria for diagnosis, not just delayed stomach emptying, but the symptoms that you described earlier, the nausea, vomiting, what we call early satiety or, or feeling of, of fullness early, earlier than you should be, upper mid-upper abdominal discomfort are all characteristics of, of gastroparesis. Traditionally, the mainstay of treatment has been to uh, focus on smaller, more frequent meals rather than you know eating three full, two or three full meals a day, something more like five or six smaller snack-sized meals, um, and in the form of a low-residue diet. And this is I'm going to go a little bit against what I said earlier about fiber. Gastroparesis is a situation where Fiber, especially insoluble fiber, the fiber that is really hard to digest, is not your friend. So eating a big salad, you know, roughage, uh, greens, raw vegetables, those kinds of things tend to just sit in the stomach. And uh, people can really get into trouble with, with that. Um, they think they're eating a good, healthy meal or diet, lots of vegetables, but uh, they can get into trouble with gastroparesis. In severe cases, severe flare-ups, we actually may have to go to a liquid diet for a couple of days or a few days to, count, to give the stomach a chance to empty out. For beyond the diet and lifestyle uh, uh, modifications for gastroparesis, you can get in, we get into pharmacologic therapy, medical therapy. Uh, the most commonly used medicine in the United States is metoclopramide, uh, better known as Reglan. Uh, it, it is okay for reducing nausea and vomiting and, and does, it is a prokinetic. It, it speeds stomach emptying up some, but it has some problems. It, it, uh, commonly causes side effects of you know, kind of jitteriness, anxiety, uh, uh, sometimes trouble sleeping. Uh, many patients don't have these side effects, but they, they are they are relatively common. More concerning is a serious neurological side effect called tardive dyskinesia, which results in uh, slow, sort of uncontrolled movements. Uh, not actually a very good mix with Parkinson's disease. Uh, nice. So for that reason, we the FDA has a boxed warning on Reglan metoclopramide that it not be used for longer than 12 weeks. We do violate that sometimes uh, with the patient's consent when there really are just no other good options, but that's a general rule. I don't look at it very favorably as a long-term great option. Outside of the U.S., an alternative prokinetic, again, that means speeding the stomach up, is domperidone. It's mm -hmm. readily available in Canada and Europe and really everywhere else in the world. It missed its chance for FDA approval because of some concern about heart rhythm problems many years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's, well, I guess what you'd call an orphan drug now. It's just the, the expense of getting it through FDA approval is just not going to happen in the U.S. So 
it can be obtained in the U.S. with special uh, uh, compassionate use or uh, uh, approval. Uh, it requires a special application with the FDA, though, and so it's very rarely used in the U.S. But is uh, it, 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 we used to be able to get it a little more easily through some back channels, and I've had several. I'd had patients over the years who did very well on it, better than they did on Reglan. So for oh. for listeners outside of the U.S., that that is something. It, it is a it is an option. Very good, very good. And and you know, there's a a new drug that uh, has come on the U.S. market called Motegrity, and it's a FDA approved now for chronic constipation, as you know. But there's a few small studies that were done in Europe looking at um, gastric emptying and helping motility in Parkinson's patients using Motegrity, and mm-hmm. and these results were were suggesting some some possible benefit there. Um, it, it it would be used off label if we were trying to use it for gastric emptying in the U.S. But have have you seen any help with this particular drug? With- yes, I have, and I ha- I have used it. Uh, it is as you say off label for gastroparesis. It does does not have that labeling in the U.S. But you'll find that there that there is a lot of crossover among these patients, and many people who have or really most people uh, in, in, in Parkin- setting of Parkinson's who have gastroparesis do also have constipation. So uh, my approach has been a patient who has both legitimate diagnoses uh, and may be a candidate for motegrity for the constipation, and that stays is staying on label for chronic constipation. Um, but uh, I... Uh, also un, uh, may kind of understand uh, through a back it's a backdoor way of getting motegrity also for gastroparesis and i have seen some improvement so mm-hmm. it's uh would hope that maybe someday it may be approved for gastroparesis because if we if there's one thing we need maybe more than anything else in gastroenterology it's better prokinetic medications gastroparesis mm-hmm. is such a challenging problem sure. and we have such limited tools to to deal with it so yes motegrity is a is a good choice in the right setting yes wonderful okay now i want to switch gears a little bit we we have worked together um, over the years um, helping our patients receive a a more advanced therapy that's called Duopa. This is the mm-hmm. um, the pump system that pumps levodopa into the uh, digestive tract through tubing that goes into the stomach and then down into the small intestine. And we did a podcast. We did a show on um, this particular therapy and interviewed one of our patients that has done really well with Duopa therapy. But now that we're talking to the expert, I I want to get your thoughts because you were really you were one of the first specialists in the country in the U.S. to commercially implant the Duopa system. Um, you were you were ahead of most centers, um, uh, and we had a number of patients get started on this back in 2014. So you've had a I know very extensive experience in not only inserting these tubes, but then managing um, how the tubes work over time and and complications that can come up. So I just thought our, our listeners might be interested in, in your thoughts about the Duopa system and what you've seen from from your end of care. Yes. When, when I first started talking to you, when you and I were discussing the, what this was, how it would work, and what, what you would need from the gastroenterologist in, in terms of implanting the tube, 
Um, I, I, as you and I have discussed, I was skeptical that like, oh, people are not going to want to do with it, deal with this and mess with this tube. And, mm-hmm. but it's easy to say that I'm not the one living with Parkinson's disease. And what I've found over the years is yes, there, there are problems. Anytime you have a foreign body implanted in the abdomen, and then there's an additional, as you said, an additional tube runs not just into the stomach, but runs down far, uh, as far as we can get it into the small intestine, the, the first and second parts of the small intestine, the, the duodenum and jejunum. And it has to stay there in order to deliver the medicine into the small intestine. Um, there are just inherent, uh, usually minor, but sometimes not minor problems that, that come up with that. Um, infection, tubes being coiled up, uh, tubes becoming disconnected or being accidentally tugged on and coming loose and so forth. But the vast majority, the, the proof, I guess to, to, to use the cliche, the proof is in the pudding because the vast majority of patients who have had this tube placed, when there is a problem, they don't come to me saying, I'm sick of this thing. I want it out. Um, the, the vast majority say, boy, my, I've got a problem with my tube. When can you replace it or when can you fix this? I, I need to I, I don't want to give this tube up because they, they do uh, so well or at least so much better than they were doing before. Um, there are there have been a few that that uh, decided it wasn't right for them. But but the majority have, have done have done well. Um and again, it's it, the question is with anything in medicine. The question is always compared to what. Uh, yes, I w- wasn't my first choice to have a, a tube in my stomach extending into my jejunum, but compared to what? Compared to the way I was living before, with uh, the, uh, the, the the freezing up and, and starts and stops and and uh, and uh, uh, poorly, uh, you know, doing poorly with with advancing Parkinson's. Right, right. No, that's wonderful, and we we so appreciate your involvement with this particular treatment and helping all of the patients that you have. You've you've just been wonderful. And well, and I appreciate I, that. It's it's gratifying to see the ones that that do so well. And I, I think I I may know the guest you had on the podcast, and that's in particular is very gratifying. Right. To right. see how well he has done. Yes, and, and I think um, you know for for caregivers out there and and patients with them that are even considering this type of treatment, I think it's always important that you look at the center that's offering this type of therapy and that you have someone um, like Dr. Blankenship here that um, is invested in, you know, helping patients and being available to patients. And and we've seen some problems throughout the country where uh, maybe the neurologist is interested and, and gets their patient to this particular therapy, but then uh, there's nobody from an interventional side available to help out if complications develop. The mm-hmm. uh, sometimes the support's not there, and so it's it's been so wonderful and helpful to have you uh, be available to our patients and able to to kind of fix these problems when they need it. Well, I appreciate that. It's uh, just it it does help to see. Uh, to see that it makes a difference for them. So again, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, thank you. And, and, and so I, I have to ask while we have you, and I, I know we're, we're kind of getting near the end here, but I, I have to ask you about probiotics. This is mm-hmm. sort of a hot topic in um, Parkinson's and movement disorders. And a lot of our patients are reading how important probiotics are, not just for um, their digestive system, but, but also possibly to help with uh, medication absorption mm-hmm. with the dopamine and 
and sort of this this axis, this connection between the gut and the brain. And and so I, I want to ask you what your thoughts are on probiotics. And, and, and one of the questions that people keep asking me is, is there a difference? What probiotics should I take? And, and should I be taking a certain amount of, mm-hmm. of, of it? And, and how do I figure out what's best for me? And, and I don't know what the best advice would be for them on that. The, 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 the reason that you don't know is, is, is a good reason. And that's that, that really n- none of us really knows. And so my opinion on probiotics is, is decidedly mixed. Uh, I think that there is something to it, to what, what you're talking about with regard to Parkinson's, but also with many other uh, uh, GI and even some non-GI problems. The problem is that the data are are limited. Um, studies are difficult to replicate. Uh, there are so many probiotics that are available out there that um, it's just uh, sort of a free for all. And mm. I have uh, I can tell you with regard, say, to irritable bowel syndrome, which is one of the most commonly, you know, probably the most common thing we see. Um, many patients are on probiotics. They've read various things uh, and tried different probiotics. But the, the guidelines, the formal guidelines put out by our professional society, American College of Gastroenterology and, and other, other societies, are, actually are not at this point recommending routinely using probiotics outside of clinical trial. Now, there are certain specific conditions in, in, in the GI world where there is probably um, uh, enough proven benefit, say, maybe pouchitis in patients that have had their colons removed and have a, a pouch after a, a ileal anal pouch after a, a colectomy for ulcerative colitis. There are, there are some indications, but um, the upshot is I generally don't um, push probiotics or recommend probiotics uh, Unless asked, uh, if if patients bring it up or have questions about it, I level with them that uh, we just we have limited data and uh, not enough uh, not enough uh, proof one way or the other, and certainly not enough to say this particular probiotic made by this company in this dose is the right thing to take. Now, with that said, I, I have plenty of people who have. Um, gotten on probiotics on their own and have found one that they like and are convinced that, uh, and I don't mean to say that flippantly, they, they, they believe and they, you know, their, their life is better. And, uh, uh, and it, and it may be, it may be working. And so if that's the case, I, I don't, you know, don't dissuade people from, from taking them. I caution about cost. Uh, I would be careful about buying something, uh, that's extremely expensive. Um, uh, if you're going to go the probiotic route, probably just your, uh, what's available over the counter at, uh, at a, at a standard pharmacy, um, is, is a reasonable choice and, uh, give it a try, you know, but if you, if you do it for a month or six weeks and there doesn't seem to be any improvement, then it's probably not something you need to stay on. There are some in particular with regard to constipation. There are some studies that suggest in particular that constipated patients may have some benefit with increase in, uh, in regular formed bowel movements on uh, on probiotics. But again, they're conflicting data and I don't have a particular one that I would recommend over any other, unfortunately. That may change though. It's not uh, people recognize there need to be more more uh, uh, studies done in this area, and uh, over time, this may change. Yes, yes, great information. Thank you. And and so, kind of as we wrap this up, I want to um, 
I first want to ask you about, um, it, it really sounds like um, our patients who may be used to really just seeing primarily their primary care physician and maybe their neurologist and movement disorder specialist for Parkinson's, it, it really sounds like um, having a gastroenterologist would be a, a, a big help in, in fighting this disease, especially if, if we're dealing with some of these more challenging issues like chronic constipation and gastric emptying problems and, and a lot of these things. And it sounds like you have tests that would be very important in helping them understand the best treatment to embark on. Yes. the uh, I think with – I wouldn't, I, other than just standard screening, I, if you have a, a Parkinson's, a patient with Parkinson's disease who doesn't really have gastrointestinal symptoms, don't know that, that every Parkinson's disease patient needs necessarily to have a gastroenterologist outside of the routine um, screening procedures that are recommended. Um, but with symptoms, the constipation, I think it's important, uh, constipation, certainly gastroparesis, I think a multidisciplinary approach involving the neurologist, the primary care physician, and yes, a gastroenterologist, I, I think is, is, is ideal. Um, and, and they should be getting their routine screening colonoscopies just like anybody else, correct? We should. That's correct. The, the current, the, traditionally for, for quite a while, the, the guideline has been in average risk patients age 50, in patients with a family history and a first-degree relative, colon cancer screening should begin at age 40 or 10 years younger than the age of the person in the family who had the colon cancer or an advanced colon polyp. That has recently changed. Uh, not all insurance payers are, are um, on board with it yet, but the uh, uh, polyp and colon cancer uh, multi-society task force has uh, uh, they, uh, we are dropping and expecting these guidelines to drop to age 45 so screening would begin at age 45 either with a colonoscopy or uh, in the right patient uh, 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 non-invasive uh, means such as a cologuard stool test that is a viable option it's uh, uh, particularly for patients who would not otherwise be screened it is very effective at detecting colon cancer and fairly good at detecting colon polyps, but needs to be done every three years. A colonoscopy, uh, good, clean, uh, complete colonoscopy to the cecum, the end of the colon, every 10 years in an average risk person, or the interval would change depending on other risk factors uh, or depending on what is found. If a person has polyps, then we change those intervals depending on how many polyps were found, polyps being growths that uh, can turn into colon cancer, how many polyps were found, how big they were, and what they look like under the microscope. There's not currently in the United States a recommendation for routine upper endoscopy unless a person is having symptoms. That is different in some say, in the, in the uh, Far East, uh, the, where, where gastric cancer is much more common. But in the U.S., uh, uh, an upper endoscopy is only indicated based on symptoms, so un uncontrolled heartburn, trouble swallowing, uh, or perhaps the gastroparesis symptoms we discussed earlier. Okay. And us care partners and caregivers certainly need to make sure we're getting our screening test done as well. And I have to admit, I'm delinquent on mine. I'm going to 
get my colonoscopy going after your <laughs> recommendation there. <laughs> um, but we need to take care of ourselves as well. Um, yes. So any other advice you would give um, us care partners and caregivers of loved ones with Parkinson's regarding sort of digestive health? I think I think we in, in gastroenterology we we think in terms of of something of, of a, uh, something called alarm symptoms. When we see a patient with any problem, we think, well, are there GI alarm symptoms here? Uh, unexplained weight loss, malnutrition, uh, blood in the stool, uh, 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 unable certainly unable to swallow, unable to keep food down, and, and nausea and vomiting. These are things that that are really seem pretty obvious when you think about it. But uh, so so the caregivers, care partners should listen to their own instinct if they have a sense that something is not right. Uh, they, they think of these these alarm symptoms or alarm signs. Uh, if there's lab work done and a person has unexplained anemia, uh, the the doctor is noticing that the weight is gradually declining. These are symptoms and signs that we should watch for, not just in Parkinson's patients, but in in anybody. And uh, mm. and then go get go see your doctor and get checked out if if these things crop up. Very good, very good. Well, you've been so generous with your time today and have given us such wonderful advice. Um, Dr. Blankenship, thank you for, for being on the podcast today and helping us understand these important issues for our loved ones. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining the Parkinson's Disease Caring Podcast. Please visit pdcaring.com for more information. And remember, you are a better Parkinson's disease caregiver than you think.